participate in the show. Hello, um, welcome to Radio FM 88 Australia, We're broadcasting live simulcast on radio as well as through the Facebook sites. It's uh, seven o'clock in the Australian East Coast. It's Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania, ACT. It's nine o'clock in New Zealand. It's 10 o'clock to our UK listeners and viewers. And uh, today um, we've got an interesting array of two gentlemen who are right at the top there. So one we've got um, in the Australian bush, (laughs) right out there in the Never Never. He's operating from his car, so um, feels like get smart there in the cone of silence, Um, or from the twilight zone. But um, above me um, is Sri, and he's uh, sitting there in Singapore. So, and of course, over on this side, that side, it's amazing here, mirror reflection, is um, my co-host and um, good mate, Julia, who's here in Brisbane. And um, and so welcome to everyone. Thank you very much for coming on board. G'day. Thanks, Jeff. Great, welcome. Thank you. Great. Welcome, welcome everyone who's listening and tuning into Dreaming the New Dream. We um, are going to be talking very much dream stuff today, as in everybody dreams of union, not separation. And uh, the two gentlemen that we've invited in the show have uh, been following and translating and delving into the yogic tradition of the Patanjali Sutras, which is an ancient guide to the spiritual journey, which uh, have guides and instructions for freeing ourselves from perceptions of sorts that cause us to feel separate from ourselves, each other and nature and um, thus reduce suffering in our life. So good evening, everyone. Good evening. Good evening, Srikant Raghunath. You're based in India. You've done a PhD in, uh, in you've studied, uh, you, you have a PhD from UQ, uh, and uh, you've studied Sanskrit and traditional Indian philosophical and spiritual texts in your formative years, and you've been collaborating with Brisbane, uh, Queensland-based Dan Alders, Dan Alder, who teaches yoga classes, workshops, and teacher trainings. And the two of you have collaborated to bring out this book, uh, the latest translation, Your Style of the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. So welcome onto the show. Thanks, Thank Julia. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So Dan, we might start off with you. Uh, what, what, what started you off on this journey? Um, Everything about my yoga life happened entirely unexpectedly and almost by incident or accident. Um, and none of it was planned at all. Um, like finding yoga as a, as a practice in the first place was uh, just, like I say, unexpected. And everything that followed from that has been very much unexpected. Meeting Shrikanth, uh, unexpected. Uh, and certainly beginning to, uh, you know, inquire very deeply into the yoga sutras was also unexpected. But I guess it just all came around through uh, curiosity. And uh, so, yeah, curiosity, I would say, is what has uh, got this whole thing started. Mm. You've got an inquiring mind and you're a seeker. So what is it? We always have push-pull factors. What is it that you... that cause you to go looking for yoga and you know these uh these instructions behind the scenes 
Sure. Um, well, I guess it's kind of a case of, you know, one thing leads to another. And the thing about yoga practice that I have found to be most powerful and transformative is the philosophical aspect of yoga. And when I was first introduced to some of the philosophy, I just found it to be so very, very agreeable and, and also very, very useful. And, um, and one of the things that I liked most about it was that it didn't seem to be a set of things that you must do, but it was framed in a much more gentle way than that. Uh, sort of like if you would like to live a better life, if you would like to have more peace, uh, here's a set of guidelines that might help you to do that. Uh, there was no sort of damnation attached to the ideas, which uh, I found to be helpful. Yeah, it's not like the Ten Commandments, you know, sort of follow these or die in hell. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Srikanth, can I switch to you? So, um, what's your background? Um, how, how have you come to immerse yourself in this philosophy? Yeah, so... Um... For me, it, uh, in my formative years, I uh, was quite uh, widely exposed to some of these uh, uh, traditional uh, practices back in India uh, when I was a student in high school and uh, up to undergraduate uh, studies. And then um, I, I mean, I was trained as a, uh, like in the asana and pranayama practice back in India. Um, at the S. Vyasa school. And uh, that was pretty much uh, the exposure towards the physical aspect of uh, yoga. And then I uh, happened to uh, like start listening to quite a lot of uh, uh, talks on this topic of yoga and uh, started reading uh, upon uh, texts on these topics and uh, developed that interest over uh, period of time and um, uh, again I would say uh, quite a bit of it was uh, by chance and um, it was not something that I uh, started to uh, look towards but uh, uh, happened uh, organically and uh, I think uh, some of the other contributors in this case would be my uh, training in music, which is uh, Indian classical music, which is basically devotional in nature. And that kind of uh, helped uh, segue into uh, this kind of a, uh, an area with uh, uh, I mean, working uh, on topics such as uh, um, identifying who we are as being and that kind of stuff. So, yeah. So that's, yeah, but... that's where it started. And then, yeah, uh, all the uh, things that happened in Brisbane and back now in the last couple of years over these uh, great discussions on the book um, translation. Uh, yeah, so mm. that's been the journey. So thank you for that. It sounds like you, you grew up with it, and um, but it's had enough to draw you in deeper we did, Jeff, we did have John Balam on the show who does Kuritan. 
and uh, the chanting. Actually, Janine, yeah. who's introduced us to Dan, introduced yeah. me to. I went chanting with her, and uh, and um, I think mm. turning up and not knowing what it is you're singing is for an intellectual person quite confronting. So I can imagine that when you want to mm -hmm. uh, investigate and find out what it is, one's <laughs> giving one's energy. <laughs> Time and space yeah. to, but I'm really curious as an aerospace engineer, you know, so how, how do you combine the integrate the two sort of like? Yeah, so. Separate, and they're obviously not paradoxical. I think there's a link there that you might be able to explain that other people can't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, so on a day to day basis, uh, we end up. Uh, coming across quite a few challenges uh, in our own lives in a variety of uh, different areas, um, uh, not only professional, but personal and uh, uh, all these kinds of different areas. And uh, I found uh, like uh, following some of these instructions and also listening to some of these uh, talks related to this topic of um, identifying um, or uh, what we identify ourselves as and how uh, that has a bearing on uh, what we suffer as an individual uh, uh, was something that was really striking uh, for me. And uh, that's when I began exploring further into this uh, topic of um, what it all means to be uh, in union and, uh, uh, and such. And, uh, as an engineer, I mean, how this uh, comes about as a uh, tool is uh, it keeps me grounded in my uh, professional uh, life as well. It's not like uh, some of these aspects of, uh, say, um, uh, the nature of uh, how we handle our egos and and um, uh, these identity issues at workplace and all that uh, can also be we can see some of those solutions in uh, Yogic's uh, uh, description as well in this uh, sutra descriptions, and you can apply that to your uh, daily, day-to-day uh, -day, uh, life challenges as well. And that's what I found um, is quite um, useful for me, um, looking at it from that perspective. Mm. And I understand the, um, you know, the guide. This book that the two of you have translated. Um, is, is ancient. It's like what two hundred or three hundred before Christ or after after Christ. I can't remember. Yeah. yeah. And um, the guides sent around what they say eight limbs. So you've got yama restraints, niyama discipline, asana physical postures, four pranayama breath control, pratyahara withdrawal of the senses. I'm going to ask you about that. I'm interested in that. Dhyana concentration or focus, I guess. Uh, Dhyana meditation, and then eight samadhi bliss or enlightenment. Presumably cultivating that. So, and it's quite a quite. There's a lot of scriptures around that. How is it organized? Sort of, you know, if you were going to invent a manual to enlightenment, which, which I presume is what this is. <laughs> What's the structure? What's the organization? Probably let Dan take that first. That's okay. Okay. Um, yeah. The, uh, the the structure is like beautifully elegant and very very simple, um, although incredibly difficult to 
to actually do and, and to practice and ultimately to accomplish. But the structure is just glorious. Um, Patanjali, he begins by telling us exactly what it is that the end goal is, if you like. And that is that yoga is mind fluctuation cessations. So this is essentially finding an incredible peace within the mind that isn't even disturbed by things as agreeable as love or joy. It's a mind state that is essentially free from even your own experience. And then those eight limbs that you mentioned, that is one of the pathways to this state, uh, which is called samadhi. So it's, um, so those eight limbs, they all fit into about, uh, you know, it's probably about 30 sutras and they're very, very terse. And there's not even all that much instruction. Uh, it's simply, it's more a case of rather than telling you what to do, it's a case of if you're able to do this, this will result from it. And so the first thing that Patanjali uh, tells in the eight limbs is the yamas, as you say. And this is the practice of replacing harmful thoughts with non-harmful thoughts, untruthful thoughts with truthful thoughts, desirous thoughts with non-desirous thoughts and a couple of others along similar lines. And so this is the foundation for finding peace within your own mind, removing what's called vitarka, um, sort of, I guess, that is just ill thought or um, troubling thoughts. And so once the mind is free from troubling thoughts, it's much easier to find a great depth of peace. So, um, so yeah, so through the limbs you go onto the second limb, which is really the, uh, the precepts or the necessities of bringing the mind to peace and asana, uh, your posture just simply needs to be stable and comfortable. Uh, your breath, your prana, like the posture, needs to be stable and comfortable or long and subtle, as Patanjali puts it. And when these things have been set into place, the pratyahara, which uh, you said you'd ask about, basically what Patanjali says there is that the mind mimics the, what the senses have already done. So you might know if you meditate or even if you just, you know, concentrate on a book, as you're reading the words on the page, uh, the sounds around you soften until you no longer pay them attention. So you could say that the ears withdraw from their sense object, the sound. And so pratyahara is the mind withdrawing from its sense objects, which are thoughts. And then that allows one to um, begin concentration, dharana. And, uh, and so the, so that's at limb number six right there. And, uh, and then you've got dhyana, which is a 
more concentrated version of dharana. And finally, samadhi, which is when all identification, including identification of yourself as somebody who is involved in a practice, drops away and, um, and there's no differentiation between or separation, if you like, between the, the seer and what is seen. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's the eight limbs in 45 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> you have quite a gift for putting it very simply. And um, mm. it certainly makes one want to find out or experience more. The, the aspect of withdrawing your senses, um, I think we understand that. What is it like when that the ego falls away or that yeah, that sense of self dissolves? What does it feel like to the two of you? Uh, do you want to take that, Shrey? Uh, I think I was on mute. Uh, yeah, sure. I can take that. So, um, uh, when you say you drop your ego, uh, it's not the easiest of things to do and maybe not does not happen very often either. So, uh, there's always a struggle uh, to actually be able to do that in the first place. Um, uh, but when that happens, uh, I think it is a feeling of, um, uh, I would say, uh, acceptance of what's happening um, around you and also, um, uh, I would also consider it uh, expansion. Uh, you tend to see yourself not just limited to uh, this body, but as a uh, as an expansive uh, uh, presence uh, around here. So uh, those are uh, you when you limit yourself to uh, just your egoistic uh, self. It is kind of restrictive, and uh, I think it. Uh, pretty much uh, holds you or binds you into a space where uh, there is a uh, possibility of uh, more and more suffering. And when you are able to uh, stretch yourself and expand uh, to see yourself as one with uh, your surroundings, um, that uh, brings in uh, a lot of uh, comfort. Uh, at least in uh, my perspective. So that's uh, what has been my experience uh, so far. Yeah. And then it's an experience that you try and, try and um, recreate as often as possible because it's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. What about you, Dan? Um, you first experience it? Uh, so when did I first experience that? Um, yeah. yeah, look, I, um, I have a, a way of thinking about that particular idea, which, um, which might seem um, 
like I'm trying to uh, back out of answering the question. But um, if the ego does disappear, then there's nothing there to see the experience that remains. So I certainly know what it's like to have my ego reduced in size from, you know, being <laughs> as big as anybody's uh, to being hardly noticed at all by myself. And that, you, like, the, the ego gets smaller and smaller as you give less and less attention to it. So through, you know, so y- you can lose yourself or lose your ego through practically any task and the ego grows bigger as soon as you ask yourself, like, what's in it for me? Or am I enjoying this? Or is this difficult? Or how much longer is this going to last? So the egoless state is a little, I think, what Shri suggested, where you're just in the moment and there's a sense of losing yourself in what you're doing. And so that can be task oriented. But in my mind, what makes the practice of meditation so difficult is because meditation is really not task orientated, like, you know, like cleaning or studying or exercising or walking. Um, And so when the mind is left with only itself rather than interaction with an activity, um, the ego dropping away becomes um, much more difficult for myself anyway. I find that the ego starts to kick and scream a lot when I sit still and, uh, <laughs> and, and try to find peace. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that's why a lot of people get drawn to moving meditation forms, which I think I would count yoga in and uh, Qigong as one because you just kind of become and the, the mind doesn't, isn't restless. And I guess, I guess my thank, my guess, my question is um, with the sutras. I mean, you, the eight limbs are sort of steps and processes that you engage with in order to obtain that state of samadhi. Is there extra value of um, you know chanting the sutras or reading them or pronouncing them that um, that adds particular magic to the whole process or you know, what is driving you, Dan, for example, to team up with Sri Srikanth to understand Sanskrit? Yeah. Um, my interest more so than understanding and learning Sanskrit, the language, is to learn and understand the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. And learning Sanskrit happens to be a bit of a, um, you know, a, a side benefit to that learning. Um, sorry, Julia, I've forgotten the crux of the, the question. Yeah, I guess, okay, well, I guess the question is, you know, why translate it now? I'm sure there are existing translations that outline the steps sure. that need to be followed. You know, these are the mm. milestones or these are the paths to, to enlightenment. You know, what's, what's, you know, what is engaging you or, um, what are you finding? What are you learning as you, you know, go and reinvent the wheel, as in translating it directly? <laughs> For yourself, sure. What, 
what is it what is it doing for you yeah i think um so i guess initially it began by uh reading other people's interpretations and commentaries on uh on the sutras and some of the commentary and the translations are quite eye-opening in terms of their rather surprising in what they say and I have a little bit of a a skeptical mind and one day I just sort of thought to myself I wonder if I'm able to like read this myself am I able to look at the words as they're written in Devanagari script the the language well the the writing of Sanskrit and see for myself that this translation is in fact what they say. So I guess it came about through what I'd like to think is a healthy dose of skepticism. But yeah, to answer the the other part of the question, what has come through actually doing it? And I think it's like there have been so many surprises and the journey of discovery has just been so wonderful that at times I almost feel like I've been on fire. My mind has just been utterly blown at the the depth, but also just the elegant simplicity and stark observation of the Yoga Sutras. And it's one thing to have it told to you by somebody else. Um, it's quite another thing I have found to um, to discover it. Um, for yourself and so yeah so that that self-discovery or or, you know because a lot of the time um, occasionally Sri and I will come up with a a a different translation one that is not only worded differently but also has a a different meaning but most of the time uh, our translations are quite similar to that of others and even still just working out the translation and understanding it um, for ourselves is really a very exciting and uh, powerful thing to do. And I find that that is how I learn best. Um, I, I learn well by reading and listening to others, but I learn better through uh, doing for myself. And what about you, Sri? Have you, have you, um, had any big game changes or eureka moments while you're working with Dan on this sure. translation? Yeah, certainly. So uh, as Dan was mentioning, there's a lot of content around. And uh, when you read through it, you are essentially a consumer of that content. And you form your ideas and uh, beliefs around some of that content. content. Uh, but when you work through a text like this, which is like really fundamental, in nature. Uh, uh, it reminds me of uh, um, an engineering practice which is called as the first principles based approach. So first principles is where you go back all the way to uh, the basic fundamental uh, concepts of physics or mathematics and then derive uh, step by step from there to your end uh, solution on an engineering problem. So this is essentially doing something like that. So just consuming content out there which uh, is based on say someone else's belief or uh, their way of interpreting a particular sutra 
uh, going into the root of it, looking at the word meanings uh, etymologically and uh, trying to decipher uh, those words to uh, see how they actually fit into the context and uh, um, what they actually mean in that context and that kind of uh, an understanding. So doing it with that first principle sort of an approach was something that was uh, really an uh, eye-opening experience. So uh, yeah, previous readings of the same work, uh, there may be similarities in some bits, but uh, the way uh, we had to uh, break it down into its parts and look at it uh, from the ground up was uh, really an enriching experience for me too. Mm. And uh, that's, uh, sorry to jump in, but it, it leads me to uh, think about how our process together became really very disciplined um, because prior to beginning uh, the work with Sri, uh, my curiosity led me to have a go at translating the sutras on my own. And I did so very unsuccessfully. I, uh, I made some huge whopping errors just purely because I didn't have um, somebody such as Sri to, to help guide me along. So, um, so Sri and I ended up talking about those translations that I came up with myself. And, um, and somewhere along the way, uh, Sri said that if we're going to translate these sutras as literally as we possibly can, because that's how I wanted to understand them, then we should be able to write the translation in English in the same word order that the sutra has been formulated in Sanskrit. And that methodology is something that we have stuck to and it's been really, really very just exciting uh, watching these translations with that methodology in mind uh, come to life. Because, uh, again, like many of the translations hold the same meaning as so many other translators. Um, but with that methodology, it really, for, particularly for me, because I don't have a very good understanding of uh, Sanskrit grammar, etc., so um, so being able to read them and understand them and translate them in that way has, I feel, provided a, a great deal of depth that otherwise might not be there. Yeah, did hey, you um, want to say something? Yeah, I do. Hey, um, okay, for um, the uninitiated who are watching the show, what's the sutra? Sure. Um a sutra is a word that basically translates in a couple of ways into English. Um, one way is thread. And so a thread as in like a, uh, like a fabric. And so it takes many threads to make a fabric. So all these sutras are intertwined and together they create something that is like extremely robust and, um, and very insightful. Uh, another way to think of a sutra is as an aphorism, um, being an extremely terse sentence, not even a sentence. It's had everything that is unnecessary to its meaning stripped away and left with nothing other than the essentials. 
Would you consider that to be a noun rather than a verb? Sutra? Yeah. Yes, yes, I would, yeah. Okay. So um, interesting, you're saying you're taking Sanskrit, which is a really old ancient language which has its own phonetics and its own sound language, and you're translating into English, which is really a bastardized language. Um, that's a really interesting task. Um, and I was interested to hear what you had to say about how you done your translation, then you hand it over to Sri to get his interpretation. So, um, I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of interpretations on, um, on man, uh, manuscripts have always um, seemed to have been lost in translation. Can I put to you that sometimes um, you can pick up an object, I think the word's called psychometry, and it's left with an energy imprint that you can actually sense and feel. And um, the same would go, I would suggest, if you found one of the original manuscripts that's been translated from Sanskrit to Sanskrit to be handed out and find that the author behind it has left an indelible image and imprint within the actual manuscript. And it's quite often when you go in and pick it up, you'll actually get what I would consider to be the universal language of pictograms. And so you get the picture comes into mind, and of course the picture tells a thousand words, and it's a matter of interpretation how you take that symbology. Is that something that you've actually considered when you've come to the translations? Do, do you want to take that, Shri? Maybe you go first. Sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was most uh, pointed to you first, and uh, yeah, let me take it after you've gone. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, uh, it like I guess briefly, Jeff. No, that's not something I've really considered. Um, like I'm not touching the the papers or hearing the words of ancient people. I'm I'm hearing it through you know, and, and touching it and seeing it through much more modern means. And um, I understand that you might be suggesting that a certain energy has passed from older uh, documents to newer ones. Um, and look, that is not something that I personally feel. Um, however, I do feel um, a, a benefit which I cannot put into words through um, understanding uh, and learning uh, the message that is contained within the Yoga Sutras. The only reason I brought it up is um, a mate of mine who since passed away, he wrote his first book. And um, when you read it, you could actually sense and feel his actual um, expression in those words because that's when you actually met him. He, and when you read sentences and all that stuff you think that's how bill speaks you know like you just tap into it when he wrote his second and third book um it was handed over to um, a london um copywriter who went through the editorial and then put all the grammatical english stuff and all this stuff parentheses and you know commas and changed phrases and put in verbs and all that stuff adverbs i'm going to come to read that manuscript again it wasn't the same wasn't the same manuscript that my mate Bill had written. It was just completely lost its whole essence of of um, 
what Bill was trying to get across. I'm only saying that only based on personal experience. I just wondered if just throwing it at you, is it something that you could possibly um, engender or just um, get a feel for something like that? Mm. But I guess, Jeff, where your question is leading to is who is Patanjali, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, who was he, you know, how did he have that power to put everything in a very condensed, terse format? And I kind of understand sutras because I've read the Buddhist sutras. I've actually just had my dad help me do the Heart Sutra and the there's the Diamond Sutra, and they are basically like couplets that um really are very condensed it's like you know like jeff you have you have chicken stock ch chicken soup then you have the reduced chicken stock <laughs> so the sutra is like the reduced one it's just like uh yeah it's a bit of like a puzzle or a chinese a puzzle box that you kind of really have to spend time with and sit with and unlock for you to be able to understand but anyway we'll go back to so patanjali who who was he Good question. Uh, just before answering that, maybe I'll just go back to the question that Jeff had uh, for us. Uh, just answer the uh, energy aspect of it. So, uh, uh, so historically, some of these scriptures, uh, uh, especially in the uh, Indian tradition, I would say, have been passed on uh, from generation to generation uh, via. Uh, not written text, but uh, spoken word and uh, like uh, these chants and uh, verses that we see are, they were not recorded uh, in a written form until uh, uh, only recently. So uh, especially the Vedas and uh, all these different uh, older uh, spiritual texts that we come across, they were handed uh, from generation to generation via um, oral traditions, right? So, um, I mean, that sound definitely carries uh, certain vibrations and its own energy, but how exactly that uh, uh, resides in a book form is something that uh, we can't really uh, judge, I guess, because, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, and that probably also answers one of Julia's uh, earlier questions about how, uh, whether, chanting these sutras help in any way uh, in this practice as well. So, uh, yeah, the sutras themselves are uh, like uh, not in this particular case uh, um, expected to uh, bring about any particular uh, changes in you as a person, but uh, it's I mean, in terms of the uh, energy or the sound that it's generating, but uh, it's mostly the meaning that you are looking for in this particular case. But there are other chants that you can see where there's uh, emphasis on the energy uh, generated through that uh, oral uh, chanting process and stuff like that. So, yeah, uh, just to uh, answer that one. So maybe I'll let uh, Dan take the Patanjali question. <laughs> Thanks, Sherry. Um, yeah, look, um, who Patanjali is, um, to the best of my knowledge, is uh, an open question which has many answers. And so 
I have concerned myself much more with the sutras that uh, Patanjali has authored more so than uh, the person, um, just simply because uh, there is no right answer. Uh, there, there are a number of answers for who Patanjali was, uh, but because there's no solid answer, I have just turned my eyes onto the the work that he's been credited for rather than sort of trying to go on a treasure hunt about like who Patanjali is. So, hmm. but um, yeah, look, I guess only to add to that, that um, I think in your introduction, Julia, you, uh, you were searching for a time period for the sutras and Again, to the best of my knowledge, they were written uh, sometime around about 200 years after Christ. But it, it, it's an unknown length of time prior to that that they were transmitted orally uh, from person to person via language that was spoken rather than written. So, yeah, so, uh, so, so some people say as far back as four or even 5,000 years. But, but again, the, the, the sutras I find are timeless. And um, sometimes I say, <laughs> and I'll say now it, it'll sound silly, but, um, but you know, it's like if the sutras were written yesterday, I would still be absolutely blown away by their insight. Um, the fact that they have come to us from at least a couple of thousand years ago, um, just serves to tell me how little people have changed. Um, mm. You know, that, that humans, humans have always been humans and humans will always be humans. Uh, that's, I, I get a kick out of that because it makes me feel like I'm not alone in the human race that, um, that uh, you know, the, these teachings sort of give us a bit of a framework, even a, a blueprint uh, to our own nature. And once you, uh, yeah, once you sort of key into your own nature, I think that gives you a great deal of insight into the nature of others as well. And 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 when that happened for me, I felt like I joined a, a very large family um, because prior to that, I'd felt like I was the only one who, <laughs> you know, as silly as it sounds, I was much younger then, but, you know, I, I did go through a time when I thought that, I was, um, you know, the only one who, who got lonely or who, who went through despair or depression or, um, you know, felt, felt left out or that sort of thing. But, but no, actually. And the more I look to um, spirituality and religion in general, um, I, I start to see that these ideas that humans essentially have a nature and our behaviors are not all that unpredictable. Um, it just made me feel a, a part of something much bigger. Mm. Yeah, and I think it gives you more compassion, doesn't it, as well, when you see it happening in yeah. people. It sounds like there's a lot of wisdom in that book, um, but not much knowledge about the origins. Would it be possible for one of you to read some of, um, some of what you've translated so that what the audience can get a flavor for it, please? 
Sure. Well, so I was going to say, Shri, would you like to read uh, some of the uh, sutras in Sanskrit? And uh, like I could uh, give the English translation afterwards if you like. It's First book. Three, you're on mute. You need to unmute yourself. Sorry, I was just saying I've got just the first one here with me. The second one is still in, um, yeah, preprint. I would say so. Um, it's uh, still on its way. Uh, just any random sutra would do. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Let's go random. Yeah. So maybe let's. Uh, I'll just randomly pick number 12. And that one is Abhyasa Vairagya Abhyam Tan Nirodhaha. So this is uh, the sutra, the little sutra Abhyasa Vairagya Abhyam Tan Nirodhaha. So, Dan, you want to take it? So, yeah, sure. Like, our translation to that, uh, that that's actually a, uh, an incredibly important sutra and our translation for it is practice abhyasa and vairagya, non-attachment, they cease. And so what do they cease? They cease the fluctuations of the mind. So, so you, you Sorry, um, <laughs> I get very talkative when we get to sutras. Um, but we can make a very clear um, line between the second sutra potentially tells us yoga is mind fluctuation cessation. And so a natural question is, how do I cease the fluctuations of my mind? And so the 12th sutra that Sri just read is the answer to that. Through practice and non-attachment, that is how the fluctuations of the mind cease. Beautiful. Well, Janine, Jeff, and Norin, if you're listening to that and um, that spoke to you, you know, drop in the comments and anyone else as well. But yeah, that is very. The, Jeff, what do you make it? It's very condensed and very terse, isn't it? It's very like bare bones. Um, I'll tell you when you're reading it out, and I thought to myself. Um, well, actually, there's a good example. See that palm tree in the back in, in my book, uh, my site there? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at the whole concept there, that seed was planted in the ground there and somehow it opened up and it knew its program and what it had to do, put the roots down and start growing. And, and it keeps bringing out, it might be an old palm tree, but it keeps bringing out new shoots. It just needs, it seems to know what it's got to do. So I'm just wondering... As mankind got a program and it just needs to tap into that same program and everything will flourish and do what it does. But um, as you boys have spoken about with ego, it, um, man sort of steps out and uses his free will to step outside that original program that could have seen him be um, the master of this world where he could, you know, teleport, transmute, um, manifest, whatever. I mean, I'm just saying, just throwing it at you. Uh, 
Yeah, look, um, sorry, I'll, I'll try and give a quick answer. But I feel that um, Patanjali has pointed towards... So, so this is like, I understand this will be a, uh, you know, uh, a different and perhaps a disagreeable point of view uh, to some. But I believe that our nature is human nature and that packed into human nature is ego is lust, is uh, revulsion towards things that we don't like, is um, the, the clinging to life. And so that is the seed which grows within us. And, but there's other seeds that can grow within us as well. And so which ones do we water and give sunshine? And so if we're able to... Essentially, what Patanjali is asking us to do is not to escape our nature, but rather to let our nature quieten because ultimately he wants us to bring the fluctuations of the mind to stillness. And if even when we're engaged in very virtuous and noble action or thought or speech, this is still creating um, fluctuations through the mind. So, so Patanjali is really just asking us to quieten our nature, but our nature, as I think of it, is um, ego, lust, revulsion, and to cling to life. Um, and, and I would say the, the proof of that thought is just certainly in myself and in everybody that I know. Hmm. Yeah, just to add to that, uh, I, I'm reminded of one of my uh, teacher's uh, guru sayings, which is like um, meditation uh, is not a part-time uh, profession, but a full-time uh, preoccupation. <laughs> <laughs> so you're always in meditation and any aberrations or anything outside of it is only an aberration, but you're ideally expected to be in meditation uh, as a full-time preoccupation rather than uh, like a part-time uh, profession that uh, we take up. So uh, doing whatever uh, we are doing as part of our daily lives, but keeping this uh, in the background and uh, uh, working with it really um, I think enhances that uh, feeling of uh, peace and uh, uh, tranquility. So, mm -hmm. yeah, just to add to what uh, Dan was mentioning. Yeah, yeah. I, f I fully agree with that, Sri. I think a lot of us don't, uh, we're not aware, we don't cultivate awareness of what our thoughts are doing, what energy we're putting out into the world. Uh, by doing that, engaging in that practice <laughs> all the time is um, one way of taking responsibility for. You know, what you're putting out into the world and what will come be coming back to you, which is what to Jeff is saying is about you know manifesting and um, and um, then expanding beyond that what we've been conditioned to uh, what level we've been conditioned to operate on as as a human. But I'd like to just switch the topic a little um, to how much do you find that 
you know, all of us are aware of quantum physics now and um, the field of potential uh, out of which all things arise. Whereas, you know, in the olden days, they didn't have that. Do you find, you know, do you find that sort of dissolving into everything? Do you find quantum physics actually gives you some terminology or a frame of reference that you can use when you're translating the sutras? Or is there a bit of a stunned mullet silence here? <laughs> now, Shri's got his mute. So it means yeah. he hands it over to Dan. <laughs> so, oh, you're the engineer. <laughs> Uh, probably look at it from the perspective of uh, consciousness and um, like the consciousness, field of consciousness and the concept of consciousness, uh, which uh, also ties in with the quantum physical um, uh, explanation uh, that you can get on this topic. But uh, I would probably um, look at it from the perspective of consciousness at this stage. Uh, for myself, I'm not sure about what Dan. Uh, if you have to say anything on this, mm. whether you want yeah. to take it quantum physics, uh, okay. I'll uh, I'll skirt the subject if you don't mind. But um, I did um, hear a very fascinating idea put forth by a uh, he's a, he's a, like a pop scientist, a string theorist. His name's Brian Green, and I'm currently you know, about three quarters through his book. And he mentioned a philosopher named David Chalmers. And he's an Australian fellow. And one of his big ideas was uh, the hard problem of consciousness, trying to put, you know, uh, try, trying to put our finger on what is consciousness. And, and I'm sure he wasn't the first person to have this idea, but uh, I think... Um, because he's a very prominent philosopher, it uh, got more traction than it otherwise might. But the, the question about where does consciousness come from is, you know, a pretty deep mystery. And he essentially put forward the notion that perhaps it's embedded in all matter, that like no matter how small, whether it's an atom or something subatomic, like not consciousness as in a thinking, um, discerning, considering type of consciousness, but just a, like a, a, a beingness. A, a, like, yeah, like even awareness is sort of higher order consciousness, but just that but perhaps the way or why consciousness arises in certain things such as ourselves is because consciousness is a base ingredient of all things, no matter how small. And um, and that was interesting. I was meaning to, I've been meaning to tell Shri about this because one of our ideas about um, the gunas, which are the qualities of all things, uh, three qualities, one of them being uh, a, a level of visibility, um, a level of mobility, and then there's this level of sort of consciousness or even uh, will to, to, to change or to do. And um, so I'm not quite sure, um, you know, I'm, uh, yeah, uh, the quantum physics, I don't, I, I've got a, an, a passing interest in it, but don't claim to have any understanding of it. It's a pretty bizarre um, set of ideas. But 
the consciousness thing I find to be incredibly fascinating and the idea that perhaps consciousness isn't necessarily the result of mass coming together, but perhaps consciousness is a base ingredient of all things that have mass. So then we could take it to the analogy you had before of the palm tree and then the seeds, the seeds for the ego, but then also in the mixes, the consciousness that is universal, but we get a part of it because by virtue of being in a, in a living form on this realm. And um, therefore it also enables us presumably through the back door to connect with everything else that is alive at this point in time. Uh, if not more. Anyway, we don't have to explain how it works, do we? <laughs> we just have to no. sort of get everybody enthusiastic about the benefits. So if you've been watching uh, Dreaming of the New Dream, we've had Dan Alder and Srikanth on. They're both authors of the most recent translation of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, if there, anybody wants to buy the book, Dan, where do we where, how do we, how do they get their hands on it? Yeah. Um, the easiest way is just to go to my website, www.danolderyoga.com. And uh, you can, uh, yeah, just buy it on my little online store there. Uh, it's, it's $20 for a book and it's uh, $9.95 to get it posted to you anywhere in Australia. Um, yeah. Or of course, come and uh, have a class or a retreat or something like that with me and, Grab one from me in person. Yeah, we've got Janine saying, great to be delving again into the sutras. And uh, thank you, Jeff and Nori, for listening as well. And um, you do workshops as well? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, just um, because I live out of, um, you know, out in the country, usually when I teach, it's, uh, you know, it's at least a few hours. So rather than just a, a short class, it's usually a few hours at, um, allow us to um, have a longer chat and to explore things a little further. I see you've got them at Springbrook down in the Gold Coast in the hinterland there. That's right. Yeah, they've got a nice retreat centre there, which I go to a couple of times a year. Um, so, yeah, so um, one coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, that's just about full. And another one, the 3rd to the 5th of September, which we've not even advertised yet. That's uh, myself and another uh, one of my good friends and fellow teachers, Corey McAvoy, uh, will be doing that retreat together. Hey, um, I just want to get Sri on here. Hey, um, Sri, I tell you what, um, I've been just noticed your whole um, disposition. I mean, your face um, seems to have a real inner glow. It's like. Um, it seems to me like you've found your happy space, you know, so when you're on the show here, you've actually seemed to have come across as a very, um, a person that you could meet um, behind a counter and you'd be serving them and people would feel the warmth and um, attention and that you're of service. Um, it seems to me that's your energy that you portray when you um, have been on the show today. Yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> yeah. I Hope I can be <laughs> that, like what you're explaining. Uh, there is uh, always that effort going uh, towards the direction, and hopefully one day that effort will drop, and uh, there won't be any effort to uh, 
um, maintain that uh, that level of energy or uh, whatever. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, you notice that at various times, you know, um, school tuck shops, you know, you'll get a lady serving you and they have that same essence to be of service and they have this um, inner smile. That's what you've got. You've got an inner smile. You know, I think that's more of a trust. So when people uh, come up to you to do business, whatever, I'm not too sure what you do in your business career in Singapore, but um, I would sense that you've got a, an energy that about you that people would um, trust Um I think that's your saving grace. I would say that's put down to um, your work on the uh, Sanskrit and the language and the um, doing the samadhis and being fully aware of it. I think you actually bring the consciousness um, alive. That's my interpretation of just um, watching and observing the show tonight. Yeah. Sure. Thank you very much for the yeah, yeah. Uh, compliments. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. All right, mate. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you very much, everyone who's been watching us uh, or listening to us during the new dream on Radio FM 88 with Dan Alder and Sri Kuntz, um, authors of the book uh, of Patanjali's uh, Yoga, Yoga Sutras Translation for the New Millennium. Thank you very much. Good night, everyone. Thanks very much, Enjoy. Julia and Jeff. Yeah. We'll just stay there and uh, we'll end the broadcast. You can just stay in the green room and we'll finish. <laughs>